Well, one of the things I really enjoy the most about ministry is today, and in case you haven't heard it announced like three times already, today's Baptism Sunday, one of my favorite days of the year. Besides the actual event, though, I have loved working with all of the baptizees in getting their testimonies done. In working through them, they would send me their testimony draft, I would make minor edits, and they would send it back, and it would go back and forth. And just through that process, it's been so edifying and encouraging, I think, for me and all 11 of them, Lord, as, as we work through them, and as we, as we tell that story again of how people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm super pumped for you guys to hear uh, all of what the Lord has done in those lives after service. We're walking with them through the journey of how they came to understand the gospel, their need for a Savior, and how they made Jesus Lord of their lives. And sometimes I think we're fine with making Jesus our Savior, but maybe not so much fine with making Him Lord and King of our lives. Because then if we do, then we have to submit to Him. And what He says goes. Submitting to Jesus is actually, though, not a burden. Because after all, it beats the alternative, which is submitting to sin, and Paul made that clear two weeks ago, that we can only have one master. It's either God or it's sin. And so today, these 11 people after service will stand in the water, and they will tell you that they are Christians. Okay, great. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, curveball today, big idea right up front. Yes, that means you still have to pay attention the whole time. Being a Christian means having Jesus as our master. Being a Christian means having Jesus as our master. So what does it mean to have Jesus as our master? Well, hopefully Paul is going to be able to tell us that today. So if you're not there already, Romans 7. If you're visiting with us, which many of you are, thank you so much. I'm going to knock that over for sure. We preach expositionally here. So the idea is that I have a, a, we're, we're, we're working through the book of Romans and we're working through chunk by chunk, and we preach verse by verse, and the idea is that the main point of my sermon is hopefully the main point of this passage that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we have here today. And then the Holy Spirit also does that work of applying it to our hearts, and we feel that, and we grow, and then we grow in community together as we walk in obedience. As we jump back into Romans, when we last left our heroes... The Apostle Paul had been making yet another black and white distinction, as I mentioned before. We're either slaves of sin, we're slaves of God. There is no neutrality, there is no middle ground, there's actually no true autonomy. If you are not in Christ, in other words, if you're not a Christian, know it or not, that's all you know is sin. You're a slave to a sin, and only Jesus can free us. From that slavery to sin and therefore we live like slaves set free but we are not only released from slavery to sin church we are released from slavery to God's law God's law in the sense of God's law imprisoning us to sin in the first place and this week through the Holy Spirit the Apostle Paul will tell us more about Jesus being our master and not sin and not the law look at verse 1 again of Romans 7 or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking as to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Once more, Paul drops the, do you not know, brothers? He drops the, if you're in King James, know ye not? Don't you know this? 
Know ye not what? Well, don't you know that the law, God's law, has authority over a person as long as that person is alive? And he also makes a parenthetical remark that he says, I know I'm talking to people who know the law. And so he's talking to probably Jewish believers or Jews who know the law, right? They also know the reality of how obeying the law then worked out for Israel. Not too well. Because Israel failed in obeying the law. And they know then the consequences of failing to obey. They know the, the despair of having God's law as a standard and not being able to live up to that. And the hopelessness that that then generates because we have broken God's law. Paul's frequently talked about the law and when we say that, it's shorthand for the Mosaic Law and given to Israel, to Moses, specifically the moral aspect of the law as reflected in the Ten Commandments. That's going to become abundantly clear at the end of our passage when he actually cites one of those commandments, and so we know that's the law he's talking about. When Paul mentions the law, though, it is really just shorthand for obedience to the moral law. Say the law is shorthand for obeying the Ten Commandments. Meaning this, in a sense, we are all bound to obey God's moral law as long as we live. But we all know that we have already broken God's law. We're actually then condemned by that law. And that's what Paul is talking about, that the law has authority over us. The law is our master. The law then brings condemnation because we have all are, are under this law. We're bound to it, but yet we have disobeyed it. And worse yet, there is nothing we can do for ourselves to free us from the condemnation of God's law. Welcome to Highlands Bible Church. We have to say the bad news before the good news is good, amen? We have to. So every single person is born guilty of sin by breaking God's law, and we're all bound. We're all under its authority. How can we get out of this condemnation that the law brings? There's only one way, and that is death, Paul says. Specifically, spiritual death to sin. Death symbolizes that any binding covenant that was in effect is now long, no longer in effect because that person is no longer breathing. Therefore, it's no longer binding. And much like a human institution that he brings up as an illustration in marriage. Look at verse 2. For a married person, he goes on to explain and illustrate, for a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul uses, again, a well-known example that everyone can relate to, the covenant of marriage. And so as long as the husband is alive, he says the marriage covenant is in effect, and the wife is then bound by its authority. Should the husband die, she is released from the binding authority of the marriage covenant. I hope everyone who is married is aware of this. You are in a lifelong covenant. Till death do you part. Stephen Noel, you got that? Thursday? We're still doing it? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> making sure. Paul goes on to explain the implications of this covenant by saying, if the wife goes temporarily insane and then goes to marry someone else, ESV is a little squishy on the translation. I don't like it. It says lives with. It's not lives with. It is marries. It is becomes someone's wife. 
So if she goes to become someone else's wife while her husband is still alive and she's still married, right, then she's called, justifiably so, an adulteress. But if the husband's dead, then she's free to marry any other man and not be called an adulteress. Make sense? Pretty straightforward. You can only have one spouse in the marriage covenant. Although, of course, as our society slides farther down the sexual sewer pipe, polyamory will be increasingly accepted. Just you watch. When you throw away one sexual morality, everything else then is now going to be soon be uh, okay as well. So how does that all relate to, to verse 1? Well, glad you asked. The answer is in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. He says, likewise, so parallel, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. He says body of Christ, he means Christ on the cross. He means what Christ has done in giving up his body on the cross. In order that, watch this, you might belong to another. So if we unpack this, we've died and unfortunately, ESV here, again, makes a weird translation choice from the Greek. Not sure why they did it. It's not that we died. It's that we have been put to death, is what the Greek says. And that's very, very important theologically. Because it's not us that did that. It is God's work, and then we submit to God. And God is the one, then, who puts us to death to sin. Right? We're united with Christ in our death to sin. Sin no longer has power over us no longer has mastery over us. It shouldn't have influence. And so you can kind of see, putting the pieces together, where Paul is going. We were born dead to Christ and alive to sin, but through repentance and faith in Christ, now the opposite happens. Now we are dead to sin, and we are alive to Christ. So spiritually we die, and so spiritually we see that the condemnation that the law brings, we are no longer under, because spiritually we have died. Spiritually, we've been put to death to that condemnation that the law only brings us. Just like a wife is no longer under the obligation of marriage if her husband dies, likewise, spiritually, through faith in Jesus Christ, he has put us to death to sin, so therefore we are no longer under that condemnation that the law brings. And all that happens for another purpose, which is at the end of verse 4. Look at the end of verse 4 again. As I continue to fight with the fan and my Bible here. It's okay. We're going to be okay. In order that what we may bear fruit for God. If you can remember where we were two weeks ago, the end of chapter 6, he says, the fruit of sin is what? Shame and death. This is the fruit of obedience to the law is life, eternal life, and growth. Good fruit, spiritual fruit. And so church, put the pieces together. When we have a change of masters, we have a change of purpose. We have a change of purpose, we have a change in what we produce as those who have been set free from the condemnation of the law. Our master now is God, and we have a different purpose. Our master used to be sin, and we were under the condemnation of the law. And so what did we grow as fruit? Nothing good. Now Christ is our master. We are dead to the condemnation of the law, so we do so to bear fruit. So our first reason or our first benefit of Christ being our master, or what that means rather, 
is when Jesus is our master, our purpose is fruitfulness. When Jesus is our master, our purpose is fruitfulness. We are saved for a purpose. That purpose is fruitfulness, spiritual fruitfulness. In other words, spiritual growth. In other words, maturity. In other words, healthiness. In other words, growing as a disciple. In other words, holiness, sanctification. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? We need to get this through our Christian brains, right? Our mission, what we do every day when we wake up is we bring glory to God by looking more like Jesus Christ. That's our mission. We grow to become more like Jesus Christ. We grow more holy. We grow more mature. That's what it always comes down to it. Think of it this way. We all have broken God's law. God knows this. We have a list of violations. He knows them all. We owe it. It's clear. We need to make restitution, but we can't. But through faith in Jesus Christ, he literally cancels that record. It's canceled. We all know it. It was there. Colossians makes a great illustration in Colossians 2. He says this, we were dead in our sin and God made us alive through Jesus. Watch this, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Law language there. See that? We all had a, had a, a rap sheet, so to speak. We all had a list of things, of ways that we have broken God's law and he knows every single one of them. And when we come to faith in Christ, that's gone. Colossians just told us that. He removes it. It's gone. He canceled it. There is no more debt. And so because of that, Paul says, guess what? Your purpose now is fruitfulness. We are saved then. When Jesus is our master, our purpose is fruitfulness. This is literally why we are Christians. It's why we're saved. For fruitfulness for God. You might be thinking of Ephesians 2 because you're all smart, biblically informed people. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8, says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one could boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's why we're saved, people. For good works, for fruitfulness. We've got to be careful here, though, because there are ditches on both sides of the road. There's, there's external good works and there's internal good works. And if we focus too much on either, either extreme, we're in trouble. We've got to cut this carefully. So this is not just good works on the outside, not just external good works where we're trying to be a good person where we're helping little old ladies across the street, where we're dropping a 20 or whatever in the giving box, where we might make it to church three out of four Sundays, where we might pray once in a while, might be nice to somebody who's not nice to us. It's not just external good works, though those are important, right? Don't get me wrong. We're called to external good works, but it's not merely external good works, right? A lot of times in secular humanism, what will you hear? I'm just trying to be a good person, right? That's not all there is. Yes, try to be a good person. We'll get to how you do that in a little while. But it's not just only that. Neither is it, here's the other ditch on the other side, neither is it just internal, private holiness. 
Neither is it just me alone in my bedroom reading my Bible. Here's my quiet time. I'm going to put it on Instagram. Chick, chick, right? Not, not doing that. Not like praying. Not like just thinking holy thoughts and then never letting any of that outside of us. Right? By the way, if we do that, we play right into what the world wants. Because the world believes in this two-story uh, application of truth. That outside we have facts and inside you have private religious beliefs. And don't share your internal private religious beliefs with me because they belong to you. They don't belong to me. We can't do that. That's why we can't just focus on the inside either. So when we're called to fruitfulness, it's not just external good works. And it's not only internal holiness. It's both. It has to be both. Paul famously talks about the fruits of the Spirit again, which you probably are thinking of because you are smart, biblically informed people. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Funny how he brings in that language again. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you look at that list, you can see there's both internal, internal was over here, internal fruits, right? Self-control, all of that. And then there's external fruits, patience, etc. It is both. So fruitfulness includes both internal and external. Don't be deceived into thinking it's just one or the other. It can't be. It has to be both. And so when Jesus is our master, our purpose is fruitfulness. Okay, but another question. What if Jesus is not our master? What if sin is our master? And Paul will reiterate some of what he said in chapter 6 to help us see how the law and sin work together in producing bad fruit and then what perspective we ought to have. Jump back to our main text in Romans 7 in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He hearkens back to our old selves, right? The ones not with Jesus as our master, but the ones with sin as our master. And note he includes he himself in that, because he was a sinner saved by grace as well. He refers to this kind of living as living in the flesh, which is a common Pauline way of saying living in sin, not just merely flesh and blood, living in sin. You're, you're, this is the, the power of sin. He clarifies that, living in the flesh, by saying our sinful passions. So it's clear that's what he's talking about. This is the power of sin to attempt us to engage in sin, right? To tempt us, to draw us in. But what is the actual tool that is used to entice us? He says, it's the law. The law he refers to here as the written code, right? And he says that is what arouses the sinful passions within us. How in the world does this, this law then arouse sinful passions within us? First, it identifies it as sin. First, it literally defines sin. We would not know what sin is if it wasn't for God's law. God's law tells us what sin is. Right? Do not commit adultery, therefore adultery is sin. 
Do not steal. Therefore, stealing is sin. So God's law defines what sin is, right? We have this parallel, of course, in our local laws. We have speed limits, right? They have defined the speed limit. If you break that speed limit, you're breaking the law. Same deal. The second way, though, that the law arouses our sinful passions within us is that it appeals to our own sinfulness because we all have sin that remains lodged in our hearts. And when the law comes and says, don't do that, guess what? Our sinful passions inside say, well, why not? It must be pretty awesome if you're telling me not to do that. Right? This is the classic example of the parent leaving the room and telling the child not to touch the cookies, the cake, or the gizmo that you have left on the, on the counter or whatever it is. What is the first thing that the child is going to do when you leave the room? Touch the cookies, the cake, or the gizmo that you left on the counter instantly. Right? Why? Because they think you're lying to them. <laughs> they think you're holding out on them. Why is that so awesome? I mean, I know how awesome cake is. Why would mom let, not let me have cake? I, I'm just going to have cake. But mom and dad are the authorities there. So you need to submit to the law of mom and dad, right? Otherwise, face the wrath of mom and dad when they come back in and see that the cake has been eaten. But it's, it, it, it's an illustration, right? We know it. We see it. It, it, it raises up within it. It arouses our sinfulness within us, right? As adults, we can use something like sexual immorality, the law says clearly, do not commit adultery. If you're having any form of sexual relations outside before or during marriage, you're breaking that commandment. But what? And our brains go, we know how awesome that is, so why is God lying to me? Why is he holding out on me? You see what happened? The sin inside us now has become aroused, and also then we're going to be tempted to go forward and do that. Either situation, we are condemned then by that law. The law has awakened this sin, and then we are condemned because we break that law. The law enticed us to sin. So God uses the law, watch this, to show our complete slavery to sin. He says, here's the standard, and we all go, I don't meet that standard. And God goes, yeah, I know. I know. I know you failed. I know you have failed. And what does that bring us to? It brings us to the realization that we need a Savior. That we can't save ourselves. So you can't ever preach the law without preaching the gospel. The law, the desperation that we should feel when we realize that we have broken the law since the time we were three years old has to lead us to the hope of the mercy and grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. We look again in verse 6. We serve then in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. In other words, we live our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit and not the power of sin aroused by the law. We are free. We can actually say no to sin because the Holy Spirit is within us. When we're tempted and the, the law arouses whatever sinful passions are in us, we don't just have to go along with it. We have the Holy Spirit inside us and we can actually say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sin in that way. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say no to sin. Remember again at the end of chapter 6, what's the fruit of the old way and the old self? Sin brings shame and it brings death. 
the new way, not the old way in the written code, the new way through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul clarifies, it doesn't come merely with our own efforts, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit. It brings life. It brings growth. And so the second thing, when Jesus is our master, the Holy Spirit empowers our new lives. When Jesus is our master, the Holy Spirit empowers our new lives. Church, it is absolutely impossible to live a God-glorifying life if you do not have the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. Great news. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. There is no second subsequent baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes with dancing with snakes or anything weird like that, right? There's one baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happens the moment that you are justified because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for sins. If you're a Christian, be encouraged. You have the Holy Spirit. And you can actually live a Spirit-empowered life. That's what it means to be a Christian. We literally have the Holy Spirit living inside us, taking up residence, and he empowers us in many ways. I'll give you three ways he empowers us. The first one is regeneration. Let's not run by that. The first thing the Holy Spirit does is regenerates us. It makes us new. That's why I said that the Holy Spirit empowers our new life. We're not just trying to be a better version of ourselves. This isn't self-improvement. This is new person. The old person's dead. The new person has come. So let's not forget the first way that the Holy Spirit does that in us is it regenerates us. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, watch this, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. John Piper put it this way, the new birth is something that happens in us when the Holy Spirit takes our dead hearts and unites us to Christ by faith so that his life becomes our life. We've seen that all through Romans, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. Specifically, the Holy Spirit is the agent of the new birth, among a million other things. The Holy Spirit makes us born again. And I don't like using that term because it's been trampled through the mud for three decades now. But that's literally what happens, right? And so today, again, after service, we will witness 11 people tell the stories of how the Holy Spirit made them new people. The act of baptism symbolizing their death to sin, the washing of regeneration, and being raised through new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first way the Holy Spirit empowers our new lives, don't go by it, is regeneration. This has to happen. You cannot try to live a Christian life if you have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It's incredibly frustrating. Michael Lawrence, in his excellent little book titled Conversion, puts it like this. It is not burdensome to live according to the new nature if you have it. What's burdensome is to live according to a nature that you don't have. In fact, it's worse than burdensome. It's impossible. Could it be that you don't live as you've been set apart because you haven't been set apart? Sometimes, church, there's somebody in my office and they're crying, they're broken down in their sin and they're stuck in sin and I have to ask the obvious question. Are you actually a Christian? We've got to ask that question. Have you actually understood what the gospel has done for you in order then to live a spirit-empowered life? Now, don't mishear me and say once we then become a Christian that our lives are just going to be puppies and flowers and rainbows. 
we know reality, right? But there, it's worth asking the question. Has the Holy Spirit actually regenerated us? The second way the Holy Spirit empowers our new lives is by conviction. Yay, everybody's favorite. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 16, starting in verse 7. He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. The disciples are freaking out because he just told them he's going to go away, and they're like, bad plan, don't like that plan. Jesus says, no, it, it actually has to happen this way. He says, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict, there's our word, the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He's saying, guess what? The people that don't know me will be convicted that they are helpless apart from me. The people that do know me will also be convicted, us, in righteousness because we need to be growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. Conviction works through the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence inside us, specifically the conscience, hopefully is spirit-informed, right? And we understand when we sin, we feel that conviction. We feel it. We know it. Conviction happens initially, of course, when we trust in Christ and become a Christian. But the fun part is that it continues to happen, doesn't it? We feel it as Christians. We need to embrace that conviction. I know that's really weird to say, but we need to embrace it because that's the Holy Spirit telling us, guess what? You need to grow in this area right here. Here it is. Here's the area that needs attention. In our cars, we have this wonderful check engine light that comes on, right? And we can either ignore it until something bigger happens or we can take it to the dealership and they can figure out what it is. Think of the Holy Spirit, our conscience, like the divine check engine light in our souls. When that thing goes off, we need to figure out why it went off. Why did that just come on? What's going on? What did I just do? We all know that feeling. We said something we shouldn't have said we're immediately convicted. We gave in to anger, lost our temper. We're immediately convicted. We lost it after someone in person or online. We feel ashamed and guilty. We committed a sexual sin. We immediately feel lower than dirt. We gave in to gluttony or drunkenness or fill in the blank and we feel it. We blow up at our spouse or our kids. The conscience is holy, the Holy Spirit's loudspeaker, church. Don't stuff it down. Ignore it. That's actually living by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Christ has saved us. We need to remember that. And so that, then the third way the Holy Spirit empowers us is by giving us gifts for service. So we have regeneration, we have conviction, and the Spirit then gives us gifts for service. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians a lot. Maybe 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same, watch this, spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activity, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God. Oh, I said that already. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. 
The Spirit's the one that gives us gifts so that we can serve the local church. Right now, there is an army of people serving downstairs, taking care of the army of children that just left here. And we love them. And they're using their gifts. There are people using their gifts to do tech. There are people using their gifts up here to do music. There are people using their gifts serving as elders and teachers and all of that. They're made to build up the local church. Paul said it's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good for us. So we need to serve. One wise theologian said, when you're a Christian, service is not an option. You need to be serving. We do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so having Christ as our master means the Holy Spirit empowers our new lives. Regeneration, conviction, and gifting. So what about the law then? We just throw it out. We no longer serve the law. What good is it? If it just arouses sin, is the law itself sinful? Paul makes that very, very clear as he lands the plane this morning. Romans 7. Look at verse 7 again. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if we had not or it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul makes his way after setting the foundation to the third objection to the gospel. If you've been with us and tracking along, first objection back in chapter 6, should we continue to sin to get more grace? His answer, by no means. Second objection, well, if we're under this grace, should we just then sin more? Doesn't grace encourage us to sin more? Same answer, by no means. Third objection, If you're under the new way of this spirit, Paul, and not the old way of the law, then what are you saying? Is the law itself sinful because it made you sin? Paul answers definitively again, by no means. He then goes on to draw a very careful distinction about the law itself. He says he would not have known what sin was unless the law told him what sin was. Back in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Right? We talked about that a few minutes ago. The law defines what sin is. We know what sin is because the law tells us. But he uses a very specific example, and he takes the 10th commandment, once again proving that he's talking about the commandments here, and he uses it as an example, and that is do not covet. Covet is to want something that isn't yours. And the thing about coveting, unlike all the other commandments, is that coveting is on the inside. Nobody knows you're actually coveting. Until you do something stupid like go and steal your neighbor's zero-turn lawnmower that you see him using all the time and you want it so bad for yourself. But nobody would do that, right? Well, some people might do that, I guess. But coveting is internal. Nobody knows it's happening until it kind of breaks out on the outside. If I'm coveting, you don't know that I'm coveting. What does that tell us? Why does he pick coveting? Why didn't he pick like don't give false testimony about your neighbor or something else? He's telling us 
how high the requirement is. He says, this is not just about box checking here. This is about your hearts, people. So he picks the hardest internal commandment to make this point about the law not being sinful. Paul purposely chooses that to show the level of obedience that's required from our hearts. He explains, God's moral law says, do not covet. Yet when I heard the law, every covetous desire was aroused, proving what we already said earlier, that the law arouses our own sinfulness and passions within us, right? The power of sin is the law. He says in verse 8, apart from the law, sin lies dead. If we don't know what is required of us, we don't know whether we're sinning or not. But God has made it abundantly clear what is sin and what is not in the law. And in verse 9, he says something wonderfully confusing. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Cool. Commentators have spun round and round and round about what he possibly could mean there. When was he uh, alive apart from the law? Is this uh, pre-salvation Paul before he was in Christ? Is this pre-bar mitzvah Paul when you're supposed to then become, become alive to the law? You know, bar mitzvah, then you actually know what the law is and you're responsible from the law. Is this Israel? Israel, the period before the law? And I always shake my head when I'm up in the law office and I'm powering through, you know, pages and pages of all these different theories. It always comes down to the same thing. Yes, it's all of those things. It's probably all of those things. We can't land on one specific camp. There was a time where Israel didn't have the law before God gave it to Moses on Sinai. There was a time that Paul, perhaps as a young boy, didn't understand the details of what he was supposed to be doing with the law. Likewise, for us as well, before salvation, there was a time when we didn't realize the condemnation that the law actually had on us. But when we did, guess what? We realized we were dead in our sins and we had broken God's law. So the law, theoretically then, he says, which should bring life, brought death. Law would bring life. It's designed to bring life. God designed it to bring life. The only problem is human beings. We can't. The problem is the curse of sin. And so theoretically, if you obeyed the law perfectly, it would bring life. However, that's not the way it works. So instead of the law bringing life, the law brings death. But then Paul makes it abundantly clear that it's not the law that is sinful. It's our own sin reacting to the law. Look at verse 11 and 12. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Do you see the lengths Paul goes once again to show the absurdity of this objection to the gospel? Well, Paul, it sounds like you're uh, pretty harsh on the law of God there. Are, Are you saying the law is sin? God forbid, he says. So here's the point. When Jesus is our master, we love God's law, but we are wise as to how sin works. We love God's law, but we are wise as to how sin works. Look at the difference in the language that Paul uses to describe the law versus sin. Sin is what deceptively seized the opportunity in himself and killed him, meaning sentenced him to that condemnation and spiritual death. 
but the law, the law itself, he says is what? He says, it is holy, it is righteous, it is good. Remember one very, very critical aspect of the law? The law is not just an arbitrary list of rules. The law reflects the character of the holy God. He tells us, do not bear false witness against our neighbor. Why? Because God is the definition of truth. He tells us to worship him and him alone and don't have any other idols. Why? Because God is the one and only God. He tells us, do not commit adultery. Why? Because it shows the covenant of marriage is exclusive, just like he is exclusively making a covenant with us through his son, Jesus Christ. We could go on and on. We say that the law has three purposes, the map, the muzzle, and the mirror. It still has function in our lives. It's the map to show us how to become more holy, right? Think of the Ten Commandments now as our to-do list. We're not, we're not earning our salvation with it, but we wake up in the morning and we want to do those things. We pursue sanctification and growth by obeying the law. It's also our muzzle because hopefully the law will then stop us from doing and saying something stupid and sinful because we remember, oh, I shouldn't do that. God told me to. And three, it's the mirror because guess what? When we do break the law, it's just like looking into a mirror. We see exactly what just happened. We know and we are convicted. So don't, hear, don't mishear me. The law is still good for us today. We love the law, but we're wise as to how sin works. The law isn't the problem. Our sin is the problem. The law only points out our sin. That's the point. And we can never stop when we're talking about the law than just talking about our sin again. We have to go to the gospel because that despair that we feel when we realize that, yes, we are under condemnation of the law has to drive us to the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ in the gospel. The error of legalism is preaching the law and just saying, just do this. Don't go to see those R-rated movies. Check the box. Don't go to see this. Check the box. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, or whatever, right? Check the box. Check the box. Check the box. That's not going to help us. I'm not saying we should do all those things, but I'm saying we don't do those things to earn God's favor. I'm saying we're already condemned whether we do those things or not. The point is, that's despair just to preach this, just to preach legalism. Do this, do this, do this. Why? Because we know we can't do this. So it just breeds despair. And we can't talk about the gospel or the law without leading to the gospel. Christianity Church is not just obey the rules. It's not just be nice. It's not about religious box checking. Being a Christian means we understand the spiritual reality that is all around us that few people ever do, that there is a God, that he's perfectly and infinitely holy. He's in control of all his creation, and therefore, guess what? He has a law, and he has a standard, which everyone is supposed to live as creatures in his world. But we cannot obey that standard. We have all broken that law already. We are all sinners by nature and choice. So what good is the law? What kind of sick, sadistic God would give us this law that we've all broken? One who gave us the very way for us to be forgiven. One who gave us the very way for us to be justified by that law, by that faith in Jesus, not the law. 
That's the good, kind, merciful God. A God who is so good, so wise, so loving that he himself provided one to keep it for us, Jesus Christ, his son. He kept God's law perfectly. By living a perfect life here on earth, he fulfilled God's law. And God's law then is holy and righteous and good. Why? Because it mercilessly shows us our sin so that we can fall upon the jaw-dropping mercy of Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why the law is holy and righteous and good. And so we love the law, but we are wise as to how sin works within us. Church, look at how good it is to have Jesus as our master. We joyfully serve our master because he's freed us from the condemnation of the law. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means that sin is no longer our master. It means we are no longer imprisoned under the condemnation of the law. It means we've been freed so that we can belong to another. Being a Christian means Jesus is our master. And when Jesus is our master, then our purpose is fruitfulness. And so, fruit check. How is our fruit doing? What is growing on our branches? Remember both, it's internal fruit and external fruit. Are we growing in personal holiness through the private spiritual disciplines? Are we growing in the public means of grace through active membership in a church? We have 11 people who are super excited to tell you all about the spiritual fruit that's growing on their branches today. Our purpose is fruitfulness, but also the Holy Spirit empowers our lives. First of all, have you actually been regenerated? Or do you think that you and God just have an arrangement? You and God don't have an arrangement. There's one arrangement. Fall on your knees in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the arrangement. Are you submitting regularly to that divine check engine light of the Holy Spirit informing your conscience? Are you repenting? Are you killing sin? Are you growing? Are you serving in the gifts that God has given you in the local church? When Jesus is our master, we love God's law. We know it reflects his character as holy, righteous, and good. It has value as our map, our muzzle, and our mirror but its greatest and hardest value, its greatest and hardest value, church, is what? It shows us our sin. Don't stop there. Yes, stare your sin dead in the face, confess it and repent it, but move on to your Savior because that's what the law points to. Church, being a Christian means having Jesus as our master and he is infinitely better than serving sin under the condemnation that the law brings. Father, this word is difficult in many ways. It's some parts are difficult to understand, but also, Lord, it's difficult because we all know that we are sinners. And I pray especially for those who may not have been regenerated yet, those who may not have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and say, yes, I am a sinner. I don't, I, I don't have an arrangement with you of my own I want your arrangement to be justified by faith. I pray that that would happen. And I pray that that would happen today. But Lord, I also pray for us as believers, your children, that we would remember the law, that we would love the law, that when conviction comes, that it would be sweet because we're reminded of the forgiveness that we have and we would run to Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Lord, would you do that work in us? 
And would you bring joy as we serve the only master that will bring us life and growth. And as we seek to be Christians, would we seek to be faithful servants of our master. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.